This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, let's not get, get down to Dr. Ian Lusbader. He joins us each and every Friday right here on Bloomberg Business Week. He's clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center, joining us on the phone today. Uh, Dr. Lusbader, always great to be able to check in with you. I want to start by hitting on boosters because this is, this is the story of the day when it comes to COVID. Uh, are you already starting to plan for your booster shot? You're a doctor at, at NYU. You were among the first to be able to get a COVID vaccine. Are you going to get your booster soon? Yes. I'm not in the absolute first group. Of, of uh, Happy Friday, by the way, uh, Tim and Carol. There's probably a lot of challenges out there yeah. at many levels. Delta is certainly one of them. Yes, I think healthcare professionals, anyone who got vaccinated eight months ago will be on the list, not first on the list, first on the list now. And we're already writing orders for the booster shots, which will begin next week. Uh, for solid organ transplants, immunosuppressed patients, uh, people on uh, chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. And there are a number of patients who feel that they are immunocompromised, um, uh, HIV patients or diabetes or patients with other conditions. So we're just going to have to see who, um, you know, the distribution of that. But September 20th, at least, uh, appears to be the, the next tranche of uh, uh, people who would get vaccinated, assuming all goes smoothly. Uh, and those would be people uh, who, who are eight months out, like uh, healthcare providers. And there's definitely a lot of trauma, a lot of anxiety with those doctors and colleagues, some of whom have uh, gotten breakthrough Delta infections and uh, and people who are concerned about their immunity that is beginning to drop. So, so uh, di- mm-hmm. no. So, Dr. Lesbader, um, first of all, so good to have you back with us. And in terms of people who are immunocompromised, do they have to get a note or something from the doctor in order to get to be at the top of the list at the front of the line here when it comes to a booster? At this point, we have to place an order for that booster. Okay. Uh, or So they, they do. They have to uh, request it and meet certain criteria at this point. I think by September 20th, it will be, you know, again, depending on how it all goes, another tranche of, of people now. Right. There are people who do go to pharmacies and, and uh, are able to get another booster shot. Um, it's certainly not uh, not protocol. Uh, and there's probably no real need for that. You know, the immunity doesn't drop off a cliff. It's just a slow, gradual decline. My my analogy is that your, your vaccine is like a sponge and a Delta COVID is like a puddle. And you get splashed with this puddle. And the bigger your sponge is, the more likely you're going to be able to sop up all of that virus. Over time, your sponge shrinks a bit. And what the boosters really do is make the sponge big again so that when you are exposed to Delta uh, or COVID so far variants, it absorbs it so your body does not have to fight off as big an infection. So that sponge doesn't just disappear, at least in most patients. So that's the rationale for why a booster uh, is uh, indicated at this time. 
One thing that I've been struggling with is just thinking about the trouble that we've had here in the United States getting vaccine-wary people going to get vaccinated. And even those folks who were hesitant, who did get vaccinated, are they going to end up getting a third shot? And to what extent does that change the way that the pandemic is spreading? Because we have these metrics, right? Unvaccinated, vaccinated with one shot, vaccinated with two shots. And I wonder how many of those folks who are vaccinated with two shots are actually going to go out and get that booster shot if the CDC indeed recommends it. You're, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, it's a, a very dynamic process. I think all we can do is educate people. I think there is still some vaccine fear, although as Delta rampages through unvaccinated people and doctors and hospitals are overwhelmed and people see that on the news, they begin to realize, hey, wait a minute, even though I may be young and healthy, I could get Delta and they certainly can and probably will at the rate we're going. Um, so I think um, we will see more of those 80 to 90 million people who are eligible getting vaccines. But at the end of the day, um, you can only protect people who are willing to get protected. And I think uh, for frontline healthcare workers, as one example, or immunocompromised people, if they're willing to take a booster, I think that's reasonable to do. We've certainly seen in Israel and other countries mm-hmm. that certainly the Pfizer shot that uh, protection does begin to diminish and people are hospitalized who are vaccinated. And some people say, uh, well, why should I get a vaccine? You know, if it begins to lose efficacy, but it does provide protection and it does really reduce severe disease. And so help me out some really basic questions. If I got the Pfizer vaccine initially, that's the booster I have to get. Same thing for Moderna or can you mix and match? So at this point, yes, you're supposed to get the same shot. We don't really have a lot of data and mixing and matching. Okay. Certainly with J&J, there's a lot of strong data that taking the mRNA vaccine after that really gives you a boost. And so I think likely any vaccine would provide a significant boost. But at this point, the, the consensus is to give the same vaccine for the third uh, if you've done the mRNAs. Can I ask you also for those individuals that ultimately get hospitalized um, and aren't vaccinated, are we better in terms of new treatments for dealing with them? What are the treatments that everybody's getting in the hospital, unvaccinated, but down with COVID? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I mean, I think we really should have made a better national effort for treatment. We've been very focused and appropriately so on early diagnosis and vaccination, but the problem is that's not 100%. And so we are still giving people steroids and blood thinners and monoclonal antibodies, uh, which do seem to help. But we really uh, should have made a better effort on antivirals and other medications, possible off-the-shelf medications that there's some studies on, and really uh, been aggressive in doing those studies so that we can offer treatment to those 90 million people who are not yet vaccinated and who likely will get Delta. Dr. Lusbader, uh, earlier this week, we spoke to Dr. William Hazeltine. Uh, he's written many books, uh, um, started companies, um, and he his latest book is called CVPTSD, COVID-Related Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And I'm, I'm wondering what you're seeing in the medical community right now, what you're seeing among patients who aren't necessarily, haven't necessarily gotten COVID or, or have recovered from COVID, but have some sort of PTSD related to the pandemic that we've been going through since March of 2020. Tim, you're completely right. I think we are underestimating the trauma to Americans. Um, They were anxious and and feeling vulnerable about Delta and COVID initially, confused about vaccinations or hesitant. 
I think what's going on geopolitically is I'm seeing patients over the last few days that are very uh, anxious and upset about global politics. So I think we're mm-hmm. seeing a lot of PTSD coming together uh, and rattling a lot of uh, America and certainly the doctors who were on the front lines in the ICUs treating patients, watching them die because of poor you know, treatment availability at the time, and now seeing a surge of more cases, um, everyone is really traumatized, even our frontline, you know, doctors and first responders who you think of as calm no matter what. I think everyone is uh, uh, having a toll taken on them, and I think we need to acknowledge that. And, uh, you know, people look yeah. for guidance, and, and there are some conflicting data and mixed messages, which I think stress people out as well. Yeah, the toll, uh, we definitely see it uh, a lot within our community. Hey, Ian, thank you so much. Dr. Ian Lospader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, on the phone in New York. Right now, cases are topping 210 million globally, deaths passing 4.4 million. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Tim Stenovec in our interactive broker studio. i uh, got to say, when I saw this this morning, I tweeted the story out with the line, now what? It is today's Bloomberg Big Take. It's uh, a most read on the Bloomberg Terminal. It is uh, in Bloomberg Business Week. It's about the methane hunters racing to change the course, Tim, of global warming. Well, joining us now is Joel Weber, editor for Bloomberg Business Week. He's on the remote from Massachusetts. Also in the studio with us is Zach Miter, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg News. Joel, frackers in America's largest oil field, they are letting massive amounts of natural gas spill into the atmosphere. Uh, But the methane hunters are finding where that is leaking and helping plug the potent greenhouse gas. Yeah, so to to Carol's point, now what? But there's a little bit of a a hopeful quality to this story, um, which is uh, that, you know, methane is is terrible stuff and it is uh, leaking at unfortunate rates, but we now have technology that allows us to actually see where the leaks are, and we can actually, you know, handle the handle it and fix it. And you know, if we have the willpower for this, in not so long, uh, we can actually eliminate um, a lot of this problem. Uh, but you know, there's some key words in there um, that I, you know, are, are going to be sources of tension in the years to come. Um, but all this reporting goes back uh, to Zach and, and his interest in, in methane. So, so Zach, walk us through um, how, you, how you kind of found out about this area of coverage and then how you went about telling the story. Yeah, sure. I mean, what was special to me about um, the, this question about methane emissions is that it's really one of the um, big opportunities that the world has to make a difference in the pace of climate change quickly because methane is only in the air for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you were to do something to radically reduce how much we're putting in the air, within a generation, you'd actually have a, a tangible effect on the pace of global warming. Something like a third of, of the warming we anticipate over the next couple of decades could actually be eliminated just by dealing with the methane problem. Well, so we always talk about carbon emissions. So give me some context, um, Zach, in terms of methane. How much are we putting out there? Because as you say, 10 years, that to me, I can get my head around that and maybe how we could get uh, ahead of it. Uh, Give me some perspective, though, how much we're putting out right now. Sure. So uh, carbon is the biggest cause uh, of human-caused global warming. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the biggest chunk. But methane is the second biggest chunk, and it's responsible for maybe a quarter of what's happened so far. But So it's really significant. And um, it comes from a lot of things. It's, it's not like ca- carbon comes from burning stuff, which we mostly do on purpose because it's useful to, right. to generate power or whatever. 
a lot of methane is like just kind of a byproduct. Cows burp it out. It comes from landfills. There's all these ways that it gets in the atmosphere. And one of the biggest is oil and gas. We've talked about it with food waste, that um, all of the food waste in garbage dumps, that creating methane. And so, Zach, what, what is the economic cost, uh, not just not for the climate change, but the economic incentive for companies to take control of this? Uh, you have companies like BP actually blogging about this. That's right. So that's another exciting opportunity about methane is that um, in the oil and gas industry, the methane comes from natural gas that just spills into the air, most either accidentally or on purpose. And so that's a product that the companies could otherwise sell. So in many cases, if they plug certain leaks, they could actually get a positive return because they could sell more gas. And so there's a lot of opportunity there for relatively low cost or even profitable mm -hmm. changes to, to, to plug the leaks. So, Zach, tell us about some of the characters that you, you discovered uh, while the you were doing The methane hunters. This. Yeah, the methane hunters, because that, that's where it gets uh, colorful. Yeah, so I, I rode around for a few days uh, in, in West Texas with Sharon Wilson, who's, uh, who's a, a true daughter of Texas. And, uh, you know, she's got this um, $100,000 camera. She, she works for a, a, an environmental activist nonprofit. And she kind of drives around looking for, you know, looking for oil wells that are that are spilling this stuff into the atmosphere, taking pictures, and and um, and uh, she's she's really funny, you know. She uh, she loves to collect stories about her hostile encounters with oil field workers, who she always refers to as Jethro. Um, and um, and uh, and then we also spent some time with the folks at Environmental Defense Fund, who are kind of doing something similar to what she's doing. But they have a much more um, kind of cooperative view of the of the industry. They're trying to sort of find facts that are useful to help the oil companies actually clean up their messes. I'm, I'm wondering so, about uh, about Zach where the government comes into this and like what rules and regulations are adhered to or not adhered to. What is the regulatory environment around this? Yeah, it sounds to me like if there was stuff spilling out into the environment, like don't do that. <laughs> well, yeah, but. Uh, there's basically not really any relevant regulation. Um, it's kind of a new thing just in the past 10 years that people have really focused on this issue. Methane isn't poisonous. It's not going to, you know, kill your dog. And so, you know, it, it wasn't, it's kind of like carbon. It's not something that we historically thought of as a pollutant until recently. And so all that we're seeing here, all the efforts that we're seeing in the Permian are almost all, uh, they're private people like EDF doing the monitoring and their companies oh. voluntarily uh, trying to clean stuff up, but there, it really isn't being totally driven by a government crackdown. So um, there's a uh, an accompanying quick take video that's also um, uh, pretty mesmerizing stuff to watch. And one of the things that stuff stuck out to me in that Zach was just how much um, uh, communities that uh, have fracking um, happening are affected by by methane seeping into things. And there's this amazing shot of um, how flammable. Uh, even even water uh, can be from from the mm. sink. Um, so so just talk to us about the collateral damage that a lot of people end up facing with with methane leaks. Uh, so you know methane is natural gas. Uh, well, essentially, it's the main component of natural gas. So you know whenever we're talking about methane emissions from the oil and gas industry, it's you know it's a flammable fuel. You know, um, and uh, but the I think what's kind of pernicious about methane, especially in the Permian Basin, which is where we were. It's just this incredible source of, of just a giant amount of methane is there really aren't a lot of 
people living there, mm-hmm. you know, um, just numbers wise. A lot of these these events where something spewing into the air happens miles and miles and miles away from any humans. And so, number one, it's not easy to, even for the companies who own these assets, to even know what's going on. Yeah, that's a good point. Listen, there's so much in this story. Um, I put it out on Twitter. I'll put it out again. Or go to Bloomberg.com, BusinessWeek.com to check it out. Zach Miner, thank you so much. Good to have you in studio. Projects and Investigations reporter here at Bloomberg News. And our thanks to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to the Friday edition of Bloomberg Business Week. What a week it's been. It has been uh, a lot going on on uh, certainly the geopolitical front with Afghanistan, a lot going on in the markets. And we are continuing to watch China as we've been talking about. Another day, another step in taming big tech. Overnight, China passing legislation, setting out tougher rules for how companies handle user data. It's a move pushing forward its campaign to really curb big tech's influence. Dexter Tiff Roberts is a voice we've talked to in the past when it comes to what's going on in China. He's Mansfield Fellow at the University of Montana, author, former Bloomberg Business Week China Bureau Chief. His book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Work of the Factory and the Future of the World. We've talked to him about that. He joins us uh, once again on the phone from Montana. Hey, Tiff, so good to have you here uh, again on Bloomberg Radio. China, help us make sense of the big picture here. Okay, well, Carol, it's great to be back again. Uh, so uh, I think what we're seeing is obviously uh, real efforts to rein in a tech sector that has been relatively unregulated. So we're seeing the efforts, as you mentioned, to put new controls on the use of data. Uh, there's anti-monopoly efforts uh, that are happening as well. We see a tremendous amount of power in a few corporate hands in China when you look at the tech sector. But beyond that, uh, there's a real ideological element to what's happening. And as we've seen now, um, and with, a, with a, the speech that the, the party secretary, Xi Jinping, made just a few days ago, a lot of it is tied up as well in trying to deal with growing wealth inequality mm-hmm. and almost this perception at the top that uh, having too much wealth is unseemly in some way. What is the end game for Xi Jinping. What is he and what does he want the Chinese Communist Party to accomplish here? Well, I think it's a tremendously ambitious plan to really create a new, uh, I would call it a new economic model, what I've been calling wow. politics in command economy <laughs> in a nod to back in the Mao days who came up with politics in command. They really uh, envision an economy which is much more government-directed and supported, one in which the private sector is far more answerable to the state. And, uh, yes, the goes about trying to make money and earn profits and satisfy shareholders like in the rest of the world, but also, very importantly, has a key role to play in the society, including, by the way, supporting the Chinese Communist Party. How do they do that, Tiff? I mean, how do they, <laughs> a private sector far more answerable to the state, got that, it's clear, but how do you do that and then keep investors interested and comfortable about investing in China entities, Chinese entities? We've seen Chinese ADRs pull back in a big way here in the United States. We see Hong Kong in a bear market. How do you how do, you do both of those and do them well? Well, I think the, the easy answer is 
there is no answer. We, I mean, it's entirely possible that they can't pull this off, I believe. Um, as you say, there's huge concern already in the markets about what they're doing. We've seen a whole series of founders of these tech companies resign in the last uh, few months. We've seen, obviously, the, the markets inside China as well take a, a serious battering. Uh, so the big question is, yeah, how do you, how do you continue to... How do you continue to push that much more ideological control over the the economy and at the same time still have uh, investors that want to put money in and at the same time uh, have innovative entrepreneurial companies that that uh, feel confident, uh, you know, working on trying to grow their companies? Does it seem like the Chinese Communist Party actually cares whether or not Chinese ADRs do well in the stock market or Chinese companies are valued highly by shareholders? Well, it does matter because they they continue to see the importance of the private sector and, and of course, the big technology companies are a big part of that in supporting the economy. They are the biggest job creators and employers already. Um, they, they should be and they have been the biggest source of innovation. So Beijing really does still want to. They, they don't want to. They don't want to spook global capital. They don't want to spook their own entrepreneurs too much. But at the same time, as I said, they have this very, uh, you know, seemingly contradictory plan to try to make them far more answerable to the state. So I think they do care, but it's not. It's not going to be easy. Tiff. So, as we mentioned, Bloomberg Business Week, China Bureau Chief. You understand this country so well through its transitions um, and, you know, from, from having really a front seat to it all, I always think about our audience um, and the investors that are out there. So so what does that mean? How do we need to be thinking about China, who is a country that does long-term plans? So what is the future China? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, uh, you know, you anyone who assumes that this is a short-term effort mainly focused on uh, regulating uh uh, as, and as of until now, uh, you know, in, not adequately re- regulated tech sector is in for a rude surprise. This is going to keep going. Uh, we will continue to see surprises that, you know, moves that, at least in our perspective, are anti-market and could hurt uh, the Chinese economy. Uh, so I think, I think we can expect this to keep on going. I think right. for international investors, it's clear that there's certain sectors that, um, are probably not going to be as uh, aren't going to be. They shouldn't be focusing their efforts there going forward, given what the Chinese government right. has told us. So obviously, private education, probably private health care, real estate, possibly is going to be reined in as well. Uh, I think instead, companies should be looking at those areas that are cl- clearly top priorities for the party and the government. So hey. you know, green energy uh, and, uh, and right. uh, you know, modernizing agriculture. Tiff. Um, and, and these various areas that are very important to them. Tiff, really quick, 20 seconds. Does this slow the rise of China as we've known it? I, I really do think that it does slow the rise of China. They're, they're also facing huge demographic uh, headwinds. It's going to get much worse in the coming years. And just cracking down on the private sector at the same time, it's just going to make things tougher and, and will slow the economy. Thank you. Thank you. We have been looking forward to uh, getting some time with you uh, and getting you to weigh in on all of this. And hopefully you'll come back uh, real soon. Tiff Roberts, Mansfield, fellow at the University of Montana, former Bloomberg Business Week, uh, China Bureau Chief. His book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, highly recommend that you uh, check it out. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We have been keeping an eye on Tesla. We did see an earlier rally in the shares today, and I just want to pull it up because I think they pretty much run out of steam. I think it was only, oh, it's back up about 1.1% here. Um, this was following the company's AI day where Elon Musk unveiled a humanoid robot to take over boring work. Uh, yes, folks, it's Elon's world, and we are definitely living in it. <laughs> Was it, though, an actual humanoid <laughs> no. robot? It wasn't. <laughs> well, no. joining us now to give us all the details from AI Day and why Tesla is doing this, and also what Tesla is thinking about when it comes to chips, is Dana Hull, technology reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Dana, it's always great to talk with you, especially when we get to talk about Tesla. Let's just lead with, with Optimus here, because I think that's what everybody is talking about today. This is a humanoid robot. Uh, What does Elon Musk say it can do, even though he didn't show off a real version or even prototype of it? Right. I mean, mean, to be clear, there was like a human dressed as a robot dancing on stage. I mean, it's kind of hilarious. Sort of sentient sentient robot. Um, I mean, Musk made some some points about, you know, the need for universal basic income, the future of labor, how the robot could be trained to do sort of menial, boring tasks. so I mean, my my thought was like, okay, he's designing robots so that he can like displace all of his workers at his factories. I mean, I, you know, I, I, it wasn't entirely clear how the robot fits into the company's right. clean energy mission. But um, that, you know, this is clearly a recruiting event, and you know, he's trying to make the point that we're not just a car company now; we're also a robotics company. Dan, I have to say, we're showing the video for our YouTube channel, uh, so they can all see it as well. Um, it looks more <laughs> like he's auditioning for all that jazz or something. Like it's just. <laughs> It's bizarro world, is it not? Yeah, and I think what's sort of sad is that, um, I mean, as, a, as an event, you know, th- the event was actually very technical, and it really okay. featured all of these engineers who were on Tesla's autopilot team talking about what they've learned as they've tried to improve their self-driving software and the challenges that they faced and their efforts to kind of design a new chip and a supercomputer and how they're training their neural networks and using simulation and have a thousand person strong, you know, data labeling team. And they really had, they had all these other people who were not Elon speaking. And it was really kind of a cool thing to see, you know, other people on stage talking very in depth about what they're working on. But then you had this robot come out or this, you know, fake robot (laughs) come out that, that kind of stole the show. And so now everyone's talking about this, you know, robot prototype and not the presentation. And I, I think it, he really sort of shot himself in the foot. I mean, if this was supposed to be the one more thing thing, it kind of took the thunder out of what they actually talked about during the technical presentation. Well, let's talk about some of that stuff, Dana, because as you and Ed Ludlow write, over the course of several presentations, Tesla highlighted the progress that it's making on semiconductors that have been designed in-house to power the brains used for its advanced driver assistance features. You guys write that if Tesla follows through on this and licensing its tech, it could end up competing with the likes of NVIDIA and other suppliers of chips to the auto industry. What's the timeline look like on something like this as auto manufacturers in addition to many other companies struggle to get their hands on chips yeah well i mean there wasn't a, there wasn't a firm timeline um but it, but i think it's just part of tesla's overall strategy of bringing everything in house you know mm. i think that you know instead of relying on suppliers for chips they're trying to make their own and, and they said you know and and it's still, you know, far away from actually being in high volume production. It's not clear who's fabricating it, but just the fact that they're even doing it, I think, is exciting to people. And, um, you know, and I mean, 
again, everything the Tesla does, you know, Musk always kind of sets out aggressive timelines and it takes a while for them to actually come to fruition. But, you know, I think they were just trying to give a flavor to people that like, listen, we're really, we're, we're trying to, to bring all of this hardware in house and, and do it on our own. Dana, how do you, you know this company so well, you know Elon Musk so well, and you've seen the promises, the things that don't happen, or the timeline that changes, then ultimately, bam, you know, this is a car company that everybody else in the industry has been looking at uh, and upping their game as a result. How do you kind of strategize or think about the news and that AI event yesterday into terms of what it will ultimately really mean for Tesla longer term? I mean, I think that you know, Tesla's mission is to accelerate the advent of sustainable energy. And they have clearly done that on the car side because they are very, you know, well-known for making electric cars. They have pushed everyone else in the auto industry to make electric cars. But now they've kind of got mission creep where, you know, they've got these energy products that they don't talk about that much, including the solar roof and uh, the mega pack and auto build, auto bidder. Um, you know, the company's corporate website now features... Uh, the big batteries for utilities. But then last night, they're like, oh, and we're also a robotics company. So I, I just feel like Elon is trying to capture the best and the brightest talent. And he's like an octopus who has the tentacles in many, many things. I think the question is, can they keep, can they keep working on these additional projects while executing on the main projects? They have, they have a lot going on right now with these additional factories in Austin and Berlin and these products like Cybertruck and the semi-truck that have not come out yet. And so, you know, is showing the world that you also have a robotic unit? I mean, that's cool, but, like, what does that mean for the cars? I mean, I, I didn't I, – I felt like what was missing was sort of tying this all together. I guess he did say, though, and as you point out in the story, that uses the eight cameras that are used in the full self-driving to conduct itself, right, just in the last 10 seconds we have? Right. Yep. There, there is a bigger vision there. I just don't know if it was super articulated. Right. Totally makes sense. Dana Hull, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. You can follow her on Twitter at Dana Hull as well. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is definitely a wacky Friday. And Tim, I'm just going to say... Even, I didn't even been... know what month it is. <laughs> you and I were like... Woo! Counting on fingers. We're, it's we August are, 20th. We are counting. Who needs a calculator? We're counting on f- fingers. Um, if I count on my fingers, uh, I would have to count higher in terms of those major market averages. We heard Doug just talk about it. We are, Tim, near our best levels of the session. We certainly are. Let's get right to the drive to the close with Prabha Ram, Portfolio Manager at American Century Investments. Uh, it has $240 billion in assets under management. Prabha, it's great to have you back on the show. How are you? Uh, doing well. Uh, thanks for having me. Help us make sense of the week that was, because if we take a look at where we are today, uh, even though as we just heard from Doug, the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ are all in the green, and NASDAQ even higher to the tune of 1.2%. If we look at the last five days, we're, we're in the red. Uh, the Dow's down more than 1%, the S&P 500 down more than half a percentage point. How would you characterize the, the volatility that we saw? Uh, you know, um, Tim, I'm going to point to the uh, uh, University of Michigan Index of Consumer Sentiment, uh, 
Now, that was a tough number. It was down 13.5% month on month and actually looked the same as April 2020 when we were right in the thick of COVID and before anybody had been vaccinated. And um, I'd like to borrow something the chief economist of the U Michigan survey had to say, which is he called it a mix of reason and emotion. Reason because, yes, you know, the Delta variant has uh, been a concern and what should have been a robust reopening has slowed down some on the margin. And so we're seeing some of that in the numbers. And then, of course, on the supply side, we have the chip shortages, labor shortages. We can talk about all those. And then the emotion aspect of it, people were exuberant about being able to get out and do their thing, get back into offices. And that balloon has been popped a little bit. So I would call this week, you know, similar to what Richard Curtin called it, which is a mix of reason and emotion. You know, um, people see the numbers. It's obviously not peak COVID, but, you know, there are some concerns on the edge. Don't you feel like, Prabha, there is Main Street and then there's Wall Street? Because here we are at our highs of the session, and it feels like we are shrugging off so much once again. We have said, man, I wish I had a buck for every time we said dip buyers uh, today and yesterday. So how do you <laughs> rationalize that gap between what some people are feeling on, uh, on Wall Street uh, versus what some are feeling on Main Street? You know, I mean, I would like to go back to kind of the reason versus emotion discussion here as well, right? So if you, uh, you know, step back, uh, Carol, and look at the the numbers, right? There's been so much stimulus in the system in the last year and a half that GDP is back to pre-COVID levels, even though that's variable, right? Different parts Mm -hmm. of the economy look a little bit different. But then we've done that with 5.7 million lesser jobs, now, for the people that are that had to step away from uh, the job market, that's a negative. But then somehow, um, you know, we've increased productivity. Maybe we just work better from home. Who even knows? But what has happened is, you know, the economy is back at the levels of pre-COVID, and it continues to march strongly, especially because of the productivity gains we're seeing with the digital transformation. And everybody has embraced it, and that's. probably what you're seeing, the two sides of the coin, if you will. Well, one thing I just would say, that to me like is blowing my mind, right? We are back to pre-COVID GDP levels with 5.7 million fewer workers. So it makes me wonder, are companies reassessing, do we really need these workers? Well, that is a concern. Well, here's the thing, right? So if you assume a growing economy, then we are going to need people. Now, the other side is productivity means doing more with less, and that's less resources, including people. But a growing economy will absorb workers. And we are seeing that this is variable. If you are a tech worker, they just cannot find enough experts in AI or machine learning. But then there are other um, uh, parts of the economy, especially lower wage jobs that are struggling. And then the other thing, Carol, that you you and I can appreciate is uh, school openings are variable, right? Kids go back to school, but then what happens is once they get there, if there is one COVID patient in the school, then the school shuts down. And that has become a problem, especially for women uh, getting back in the workforce. And a lot of them have just sat out. You know, it's a labor participation problem more than uh, because there are plenty of jobs. People, yeah. you know, companies are looking for people. It's just, you know, uh, 
some people cannot get in right. for some reason, and some people are just not, you know, they're not qualified. Hey, probably I want to uh, go from macro to micro and get some of the stocks that uh, you're keeping a close eye on Absolutely. and why you are bullish on those. Let's start with Square, the company just weeks ago announcing that it would uh, acquire Afterpay for $33 billion. Why Square? Well, you know, Square has been one of those stocks uh, that has two distinct ecosystems, and they just have a product design ethos that somehow elevates products into not just network effects, you know, which we've come to expect in tech, but almost virality. And why Afterpay? Uh, they paid $33 billion for this um, Australia-based business. Buy now, uh, pay which later. Which is more global now. Buy now, pay later, which is, you know, payback in four installments, of six installments, four installments. And Here's the attraction, right? There are two distinct ecosystems, very successful, each on their own right, the seller and the cash app ecosystem. And this gives them a way to bridge the two. Um, and the way, and why, why Afterpay? And Afterpay, you know, just we're, uh, serves a younger demographic. They right. pointed out that the average age is 33. It's mostly female. And then they are also a marketing lead mechanism. So uh, one of the stats that I saw that blew my mind away is that you, when someone comes into the Afterpay app, the seller can expect eight times lead conversion, um, you know, compared to a Google search uh, lead. And then there's no credit risk to the seller. And then they get a 30 to 40% list in, or, list in average value. So... And then the consumers like it, too, because it's an app that opens up new merchants to them. So right. it's completely complementary as well. You know, get Squared to go more international more quickly and, more importantly, bring the two ecosystems together. Right. And with uh, companies, you know, that have a data uh, DNA, that's just huge because they see every transaction and, you know, there are so many other products that they can sell into this. System. Hey, hey, Prabha, just got about uh, 20 yes. seconds here. You also like Nike, well-known brand. It's up 18% so far this year. Just quickly, what's your thesis here? Nike, you know, is a very misunderstood uh, digital transformation play. And they uh, picked up what's called a triple-double in 2017. I mean, it sounds like an NBA game. So if they said, Two times the innovation, two times the speed, two times direct to consumer. So this is basically an app play, a company that has gone from selling through department stores to selling direct to their consumer, and then having it so well done that most of the they've really cut out the middlemen and fifty percent right. of, I mean, a third of their business. So that's yeah. the story there, and that's why it's appealing. Well, two names that are certainly familiar to our audience. Great to break it down with you and also talk some of the uh, macro, macro outlook here. Prabha Ram, she's Portfolio Manager at American Century Investments, and her fund, the Century uh, American Century Focused Dynamic Growth Fund, is up just about 29% in the past, uh, past one year, and it has consistently beat most of its peers in the past five years. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.